a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You can think of this show as a thousand milligram daily reality supplement. And it's not so much that I'm the uh, apothecary who put it all together for you, but I'm definitely the, the delivery boy dropping this off at your doorstep. What you do with it? Well, that's up to you. I got some great sponsors, though, who make this show possible on a daily basis. And they include GovernYourCrypto.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, and Dixie Chiropractic, which you can access at DixieChiro.com. All right, where to begin? So much information. I'm going to tell you that there... This may be a straight-up, non-sugar-coated uh, reality supplement, but uh, this is the kind that goes down easy in the sense that it's it's good to acknowledge what's happening. We're also going to take a look at some optimistic developments that are going on, which might be hard to uh, remember as you, uh, you know, sh- shell out more money than you're used to shelling out at the gas pump and, and other places, as well as just kind of keeping an eye on uh, what's happening, not just uh, geopolitically, but culturally all around us. I want to start with an article from James Bovard. And and I know that we're supposed to believe the news media tries to reinforce the idea and politicians try to reinforce the idea that the ruling class is infallible. This is why you don't hear any kind of apology or any uh, any mea culpa over, you know, 2 years of horrific destruction in the name of we're going to stop this virus, we're going to flatten the curve, we're going to we're going to, you know, beat COVID only to end up uh, realizing that viruses don't care about what politicians enact as policy. Viruses follow a very predictable course. They spread through a population, and once enough people have had the virus and achieved enough natural immunity, herd immunity slows the role of the virus. But again, back to the article here. The ruling class believes itself to be infallible, or at least they believe that we should believe that they are infallible, Well, James Bovard says, nah, that's really not the case. In fact, he says, corrupt federal statistics cover endless cons. So you want to get to the heart of what are some of the ways that uh, that we're being uh, misled? I was going to just say lied to, but that seems kind of harsh. What are some of the ways that we're being uh, misled or otherwise uh, kept from seeing the truth about what the politicos are up to? He says, federal agencies don't count what politicians don't want to know. President Joe Biden and other other Democrats perennially invoke science and data to sanctify all their COVID-19 mandates and policies. But the same shenanigans and willful omissions that have characterized COVID data have perennially permeated other federal programs. Now, he says during his update on the winter COVID campaign in December, President Biden declared almost everyone who has died from COVID-19 in the past many months has been unvaccinated. Now, this was true from the start of the pandemic in early 2020 until the vaccine's efficacy began failing badly in recent months. Oregon officially classifies roughly a quarter of its COVID fatalities since August as vaccine breakthrough deaths. 
In Illinois, roughly 30% of COVID fatalities have occurred among fully vaccinated individuals. And according to the Vermont Department of Health, half of the COVID deaths in August were breakthrough cases. Almost three-quarters of them in September were. That's according to Burlington, Vermont TV station WCAX. So he says the Biden administration guaranteed that the vast majority of breakthrough infections would not be counted. When the Centers for Disease Control, back in May of last year, stopped keeping track of breakthrough infections unless they resulted in hospitalization or death. And by ignoring that data, that permitted Biden to go on CNN in July and make the ludicrously false assertion, you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. But federal data on fully vaxxed COVID fatalities is far flimsier and less reliable than the numbers compiled by some states. So Jim Bovard says Biden's attempt to define vaccine failure out of existence collapsed spectacularly with the arrival of the Omicron variant in December, producing record numbers of COVID cases. Now, the same policymakers who claim to be guided by data have little or no idea how many Americans have been hit by COVID. According to the CDC, there had been 51,115,304 COVID cases in America through mid-December. But a different CDC webpage estimates there have been 146 million, wait, that 146.6 million, rather, COVID infections in the U.S. as of October 2nd, 2021. Now, that CDC analysis estimated that only one in four COVID infections have been reported which would mean that based on the official case numbers, more than 200 million Americans have contracted COVID. Now, for Biden policymakers, a potential error of 150 million COVID infections is close enough for government work. Relying on the lower numbers convenient for policymakers who want to continue ignoring the natural immunity acquired by 199 million Americans who survived COVID infections. So deceptive federal COVID data is not an anomaly. James Bovard says the same charades permeate the official data guiding both domestic and foreign policies, and he gives examples. For instance, federal education policy has perennially been exempt from the fraud penalties that the Federal Trade Commission inflicts on private corporations. The No Child Left Behind Act, passed in 2002, promised that federal mandates would make all students proficient in reading and math by the year 2014. No Child Left Behind was spurred in part by Washington's exasperation with decades of cover-ups of state and local school failures. Now, school test data had been manipulated to allow all 50 state education agencies to report above-average scores for their elementary schools, with most claiming such scores in every subject area and every grade level as former Education Department official Larry Uzel explained. No Child Left Behind promised to prevent state and local politicians and bureaucrats from lying to cover up kids' educational shortfalls. Pretty interesting, huh? How about food stamp fraud? Food stamps have been one of the most popular ways for politicians to prove their love of downtrodden Americans. Now, Jim Bovard says liberals perennially claim that the food stamp program has a fraud rate of only 1%. But that's based solely on the number of violators who get caught. And federal rules discourage states which administer the program from vigorously pursuing violators. New Mexico Human Services Secretary Sidoni Squire complained in 2013 that the biggest fraud issue in her state was recipients selling their food stamp electronic benefit card or EBT card, and then claiming that it was lost or stolen. 
Roughly 70% of all the EBT cards issued in New Mexico in 2012 were replacement cards. Squire told Albuquerque's KOB Television, We know that there are some people who lose them four, six, eight times, and that's pretty suspicious. But you can't do anything about it based on the federal rules. They want people to have the cards. They want the cards replaced. Now, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel also found that food stamp recipients in Wisconsin routinely sell their benefit cards on Facebook. The investigation found nearly 2,000 recipients claimed they lost their card six or more times in 2010 and requested replacements. Now, USDA rules require that lost cards be speedily replaced. The Wisconsin Policy Research Institute concluded prosecutors have simply stopped prosecuting the vast majority of food stamp cases in virtually all counties, including the one with the most recipients, that being Milwaukee. The Obama administration responded by cracking down on state government's anti-fraud measures. Refusing to detect fraud permits politicians to claim there is no fraud. The ultimate scam on taxpayers who are forced to pay for the shenanigans. Now he goes on to talk about the fraud of job training. He talks about the the casualties of war. For instance, the, the CIA... This is uh, fascinating. Federal statistics, he says, cannot raise the dead, but they can make troublesome corpses vanish. The Obama administration vastly increased drone killings of terror suspects in many nations and claimed that almost all the victims were bad guys. But a salon analysis summarizing an NBC News report noted, even while admitting that the identities of many killed by drones were not known, the CIA documents asserted that all those dead were enemy combatants. So the logic's twisted. It's, if we kill you, then you were an enemy combatant. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, Jim Bovard writes, the media has portrayed federal officials like Tony Fauci as America's best and brightest. But he reminds us that Washington, D.C. is full of towers of paternalist babble built on statistical quicksand. Bureaucracies conspire against admitting their failures, and politicians often rig reporting requirements to hide the damage that their laws inflict. And so he says anyone who has blind faith in federal data is unfit to judge public policy in the real world. Now, there's a lot more to that article, and I've included a link in my show notes. You can access them at my website, which is thebrianhideshow.com. When Jim Bovard publishes something, I find it's usually worth my time. In fact, it's always been worth my time to read what he has to say. He's a straight-up truth teller, and he definitely understands how the Beltway works. So take the time, see what else he has to say in this article. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to say something about the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. If you are fortunate enough to be one of the thousands of people moving to the Intermountain West, you're going to find it's a very hot real estate market. And when you find the home of your dreams, you're going to find the competition is fierce. You know what? Even with interest rates starting to creep up, this is still the case. People are snapping up homes as quick as they come on the market. What this means is when you're shopping, you have to know before you go shopping what you're qualified for. This is where the Heather Turner team comes in. And if you live in Utah, if you live in Idaho, she's the one I want to refer you to because she has decades of experience and she can make things happen when time is of the essence. 
You can click the email link that I include in my show notes to contact her. You can call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. All right, moving on in the show, as uh, as hard as politicians in D.C. are pretending that they are the victims of January 6th, 2021, every so often there's a little crack in their facade and an occasional bit of reality shines through. Now, this happened just uh, yesterday when a judge issued an acquittal for a defendant who was allowed by Capitol Police to enter the Capitol building. Now, maybe you've seen the video of this before. There's plenty of video that exists. Now, still, the Department of Justice is sitting on more than 14,000 hours of video from the Capitol saying it's, you know, it's, this is uh, subject to an investigation or it's, it's uh, critical that we keep this quiet. But those of us who've watched the various videos that have emerged from people who were actually there, it's very clear there came a point where, yes, some people, strangely highly organized people, almost as if they were a team somehow, did manage to break windows and force their way into the Capitol. But the vast majority of people who actually went inside came when the, the people, when the police rather, removed the barricades and were ushering people inside and waving them inside as they were peacefully walking in. Now, this is not to say that, you know, it was just uh, everybody was holding hands and singing Kumbaya, but there came a point where the police realized, look, there's enough people, we're not going to stop them from getting in. And clearly, they weren't going to just let these people in there if they came in there with weapons or they came in there with Molotov cocktails or something like that. No. They just recognized the futility of we can't hold them back. And, and so they peacefully allowed them to come in. And most people went in, took pictures and whatnot, and then came back out, only to find themselves now accused of, you know, crimes. Strangely, still no one's been arrested for insurrection or uh, charged with insurrection or convicted of insurrection, but that seems to be the narrative. So here is an article from Politico. It talks a little bit about how a judge has issued the first outright acquittal of a defendant charged in the Capitol riot. Following a two-day bench trial in U.S. District Court in Washington, New Mexico engineer Matthew Martin was acquitted on Wednesday on four misdemeanor charges by U.S. District Court Judge Trevor McFadden. Martin claimed that he thought police had allowed him into an entrance near the Capitol Rotunda on January 6th. Now, McFadden said, based on the video of the scene, the assertion was at least plausible and that prosecutors had failed to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. The judge, who was an appointee of President Donald Trump, said people were streaming by and the officers made no attempt to stop the people. Now, prosecutors argued that broken windows and blurring alarms should have alerted Martin that he did not have permission to enter. But McFadden said the sheer size of the crowd, coupled with the conduct of police, undermined that evidence. Now, this ruling is a blow to the Department of Justice, and it seems likely to elevate similar defenses from hundreds of other members of the mob who claimed they didn't know they weren't permitted inside the Capitol and who believed that the police officers had actually approved their presence. Martin, who became the first January 6th defendant to testify in his own defense, said he believed that an officer waved him into the rotunda lobby at about 3 p.m. that day. Now, McFadden, the judge, says he didn't necessarily believe that, but the way the officer briefly interrupted the flow of people and then stepped back to allow it to resume could definitely have given Martin that impression. 
The judge said, I do think the defendant reasonably believed the officers allowed him into the Capitol. Now, the judge stressed he wasn't criticizing the officers who he said were grossly outnumbered at that point. In fact, he says, I think they acted responsibly and reasonably throughout. However, this verdict could be viewed as a message from McFadden to prosecutors that pursuing criminal charges against nearly every demonstrator who entered the Capitol on January 6th was unwise, that resources should have been trained more intensely on those accused of violence or conspiring to block the electoral vote count. Now, McFadden, McFadden rather called Martin's conduct about as minimal and not serious as I can imagine among the January 6th defendants. Martin faced charges of entering and remaining in a restricted area set up for a Secret Service protectee, disorderly conduct in such an area, disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds, and parading or demonstrating in the Capitol. That's some pretty hardcore stuff there. I'm sure that uh, ISIS and other terror groups are looking at him going, yep, we ought to recruit this guy. He's a veritable James Bond, as as well as that grandma there waving the flag. All right, back to the article. The judge says after Martin went inside, he generally milled around and stayed away from areas in the rotunda where some demonstrators were taunting and skirmishing with police. McFadden said he seemed quiet, or quite quiet, rather, and orderly. He did not shout. He did not raise his flag. McFadden also said that while Martin was in the Capitol, he spent much of the time making videos with his phone, which the judge said wasn't much different from what members of the press were doing. McFadden called the first charge against Martin, knowingly entering in and remaining in a restricted area, a close call. But the judge added, under our system of justice, calls, close calls rather, go to the defendant. Now Martin, for his part, didn't show much visible emotion in the courtroom as he listened to the verdicts on Wednesday afternoon. But told reporters outside the courthouse that he hoped to get his job back as an engineer for a government contractor in Los Alamos, New Mexico. He was fired after his employer learned of his involvement in the January 6th events. He also lost a Q Energy Department security clearance that he held. Now, while on the stand Tuesday, Martin said he had an idyllic experience on January 6th, attending Trump's rally and then later marching to the Capitol. He said it was a magical day in many ways. Prosecutors urged the judge to treat Martin's testimony with extreme skepticism, saying that uh, he was evasive on the stand and had carefully crafted his answers to downplay his culpability. Now, they noted that Martin and his attorney had attended a recent January 6th trial that McFadden had presided over and studied how to craft a defense that might play to his previous rulings. McFadden's verdict is the latest in a series of rulings from the Trump-appointed judge that have disappointed prosecutors and broken sharply from colleagues on the U.S. District Court in Washington. So McFadden has been apparently giving short probation sentences to January 6th defendants who the Justice Department said deserve jail time. And he's questioned the merit of some of the misdemeanor cases that the department has brought against some nonviolent defendants in the January 6th mob. So I don't know where you stand on the issue. I don't know if uh, if this is, you know, this sounds like, well, you know, this judge is just carrying water for Trump or whatever. But to me, it sounds like this is one of those rare opportunities or rare occasions where someone is still in touch with reality and is uh, not playing into the melodrama that uh, that the January 6th committee and other politicians and federal prosecutors seem to be promoting. I know it's rare. I guess that's what that's what makes this noteworthy, or at least it to me makes it noteworthy. Someone is actually going, hey, 
Do you think we might be uh, overblowing this just a little bit? I mean, I've seen firsthand, you know, watching the Bundy trial, that uh, the, the federal government will definitely overcharge and overstate and, in fact, try to, uh, to antagonize and set up situations in which people can be charged, you know, with, with horrific things that would keep them in jail for the rest of their lives. But fortunately, not everybody takes the bait, and not everybody who is in that capital deserves to be called a criminal. Again, tell me more about the highly organized teams that first breached the Capitol and then mysteriously disappeared. Yeah, there's got to be something more there. I don't know who they were, but they sure moved like they knew what they were doing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. That would be my friend Spencer Worthington. And this marvelous ammo company that he has founded and has been running in St. George, Utah for the last few years. Now, you know, getting components in in a time of of very, very high demand and, and different supply chain breakdowns. That's a challenge. Even in good times, you know, keeping a company running smoothly is, is going to require a lot of work and attention. Spencer, to me, is, is somewhat of a miracle worker in that he has not only kept his company going, but growing during some really interesting and somewhat difficult times for business. So I tell you this just to point out, this is a business that is worthy of your support, and if you're listening to me in southern Utah, it's a part of your community. So if you want to help support, uh, you know, a part of your community that's providing work opportunities as well as a very worthwhile product, consider doing business with HSLAmmo.com. You can click on the link I provide in the show notes and you can order from there or you can arrange to, to stop by and get your stuff in person. Either way, you will not go wrong in dealing with Spencer and the crew at HSLAmmo.com. I'm sure you have uh, seen the clip by now of Obama's recent visit to the White House. It's been making the rounds and, you know, it's and it's clear, you know, he is he is uh, a rock star among politicians. It also seems clear that Joe Biden is uh, how can I put this on his way out? I don't know. The the clip that's been making the most uh, the, the most rounds is following a speech or following some remarks that Biden had made and following remarks that Obama had made. Biden is, is shown, you know, just kind of turning to the crowd, you know, turning to people everybody's mingling, they're shaking hands. They're just kind of, you know, fraternizing, doing whatever it is that politicians do. Glad handing, I guess maybe the term. And Biden just looks lost. And I look, I don't feel a lot of sympathy for politicians I try not to walk around with contempt in my heart, but the political class brings, you know, inspires more contempt than, than I would like to admit. I just, I had, they don't have anything of value to offer me. But I legit felt kind of sorry for Biden. Not because of his policies, but just, I don't know. I've used this term before, elder abuse, but he looked like a, like a poor, lost old man. And when I say lost, I mean like, Mentally, like he wasn't even sure where he was, but there's there's an even larger story in how studiously Biden was being ignored by Obama as well as others in the crowd. 
And you could see him trying to get Obama's attention a couple of times and just deliberately ignored. And there are a number of commentators who are saying, hey, this signals something bigger than just simply Biden was having a weird, you know, uh, you know, Alzheimer's moment or whatever. Maybe he is on his way out. Andrea Whitberg, writing for AmericanThinker.com, says proof has emerged from the White House that Biden's presidency is over. Now, I don't know. She, I, she might be calling this a little bit early, but she definitely has a take worth considering. She says oh, Barack Obama was at the White House yesterday, making it clear, as did others at the reception held in Obama's honor, that Biden's presidency is over. Watching Obama suck the oxygen out of the room makes her wonder if Obama is planning a comeback, something he could easily do. Now, the ostensible reason for Obama's return to the White House was to celebrate Obamacare's 12th anniversary. If you can celebrate our cowardly corporate-run medical care along with overpriced insurance that does little for people with serious health issues. The reception in Obama's honor, though, hinted that the event's real purpose was to signal to Democrat apparatchiks that Biden is now shark chum. The chumming process began when O'Biden, or sorry, that's a good Freudian slip, when Obama referred to Biden as the vice president, adding after a long pause, that was a joke. Well, I guess it was a joke, she says, in the same way a mean husband is joking when he says to his wife, that dress makes you look like a cute circus elephant, and then tries to avoid her wrath by saying, that was a joke, I meant you look cute. No, it wasn't a joke. Biden, showing the deference of a beta male to the alpha male, or the abused wife, to her abuser, later introduced himself as Obama's vice president and Jill Biden's husband. Now, self-deprecating humor when you're allegedly the president of what is or was the world's most powerful nation isn't charming. Andrea Whitberg says it's unnerving. And worse was still to come. Nearly everyone in the room should be clamoring to be near the American president. After all, political power is the strongest magnetic force in the world. But in Biden's case, he was the creep at the party, the one everyone assiduously ignores and avoids. And not only was Biden, was Obama rather the magnetic force in the room, but he also made it clear that they should shun Biden. Watching Biden paw at Obama's shoulder only to have Obama aggressively ignore him is uncomfortable viewing. She's describing exactly what I felt. It was like, ooh, this, this is hard to watch. Andrea Woodberg says even if Obama has no respect for the man, and who would, given Biden's stupidity, incompetence, and corruption, Obama, of all people, should still show respect for the office. But she says, for Obama, the point of the presidency was never about the office itself. It was always about the fact that Obama bestowed glory on the office. No wonder then that his speech, as always, was peppered with his favorite pronouns. No he, him, for Obama. It was always I, me. Meanwhile, an animated Kamala Harris was also assiduously, she also assiduously ignored her boss. For her, Obama was the only man in the room. Now, Andrea Whitberg says there were three takeaways here. Number one, Barack Obama, whether in his walled D.C. Calorama home or in his coastal properties in Martha's Vineyard or in Hawaii, is probably the one running the White House show. Number two, Obama has signaled that Biden's presidency is over, making Biden toxic. That's the message Tucker Carlson drew, something he illustrated with clips showing Democratic media talking heads finally addressing Biden's economic failures. Number three, 
Kamala Harris still thinks she has a shot at the presidency when, not if, Biden is removed. She was auditioning hard for the job, trying to show Obama that she'll do better than Biden at preserving and expanding the hard-left Obama legacy. However, Obama, who is an extremely smart politician, despite his ignorance and broken Marxist moral compass, knows that Kamala is as bad as, or even worse than, Biden. So Andrea Woodberg says, that fact left me with an admittedly wild theory about how Obama may intend to fix things. And she says Obama's fixing to get back into, or aiming, rather, to get back into the Oval Office. Now, she says, my premise is that Obama fully understands that if Biden is ousted immediately under the 25th Amendment, there are only idiots and incompetence to take his place. If it's not Kamala Harris, then there's Nancy Pelosi, and if not her, then Patrick Leahy, Anthony Blinken, Janet Yellen, Lloyd Austin, Merrick Garland. Obama knows none of these non-entities will secure the transformation he promised America. So instead, there are three steps to return Obama to the presidency. Number one, have the Democratic establishment remove Kamala Harris from office, whether through threats or bribes. Number two, have the Democrats declare that because world instability, Ukraine, Putin, China, puts us at unprecedented risk, only a politically seasoned person can be vice president with Obama graciously accepting the role. Number three, oust Biden using the 25th Amendment, and voila, President Obama again. He could even have Stacey Abrams as his veep. Now, the 22nd Amendment does not bar Obama from regaining the presidency this way. It only stops him from being elected to the office. And as Andrea Woodberg points out, those three steps she just listed, they avoid an election. Obama would then have two and a half years to lock down America's fundamental transformation into a fully socialized third world country. And Biden has given him a head start when it comes to destroying institutions. Heck, she says if Obama does the job right, he can be the new Putin or Erdogan, America's president for life. She says, I agree, this sounds crazy. But events since 2020 show that we really are in nothing more than a fancy banana republic. I know, it's kind of a chilling thought, isn't it? And, and I, I'm curious, I wonder why she didn't mention Hillary Clinton. Because I think Hillary is still lurking there on the periphery. And I think it was Wayne Allen Root, here about a month and a half ago, came up with a very similar, you know, kind of scenario in which Biden is removed because of, you know, incompetence or mental incapacity to, to fulfill his duties as president. Kamala's either bribed or otherwise relieved of her duties And Hillary somehow is introduced as, you know, the rightful heir to the White House throne. Truth be told, I think Barack Obama is much more of a power center than Hillary Clinton. I mean, they're they're both very, very corrupt individuals. Both have no qualms about doing whatever they think is necessary to institute that far left ideology that they've been promoting for most of their political careers. Now, I don't tell you this to tell you the boy, you should be worrying more about this and probably spend more time wringing your hands worrying about the politicians. I'm just, I'm mentioning this simply for awareness. I still maintain the best thing that any of us can do at this point is to withdraw as much consent as possible from the political class. Withdraw your consent. Better still, take as many people with you as you can. And then let the politicians worry how that goes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you haven't signed up for my show notes, I would I would appreciate it if you at least considered the possibility. Every day, I pull together some of the best articles and commentaries and some of the best guests that I can find to offer some light and truth on the world around us. Now, I, I try to find sources that are mostly nonpartisan. Don't get into the whole red state versus blue state gymnastics. There are plenty of commentators out there who will provide that if that's what you're looking for. Now, if you're looking for something that's a little more based in principle and a lot less based in, hey, here's who and what you should be against, I think you'll enjoy what I have to share with you. And there's, there's a treasure trove of information, some great resources for wrong thinkers like us in those show notes. All you'll have to do is click the subscribe button at the bottom of the show notes page and then give me your email, which I will never sell or share with anybody. I'll drop a copy to you every day that I publish those show notes and every day that I do the show. So when it comes to how do you divide the world, you know, light and dark, uh, good and evil, you know, Democrat, Republican. No, I don't really go for the political labels. I I like Charlie Reese's uh, definition he gave a few years ago about if you're going to classify people, really the only two classifications that matter when it comes to humanity are, is uh, those of are, are we dealing with someone who is decent or someone who is indecent as an individual? So you're not getting into the whole group judgment. Well, these are all indecent people and these are all decent people. But I like Kent McManigal's take on how, how we could better uh, make this distinction. And that is, you know, there are people who want to control others and there are people who don't want to control others. Now, I'll admit I fall firmly into that second camp. This is one of the reasons why I've become more politically agnostic as I get older. People who think that, well, you know, we've got to get more involved in politics because we've got to, you know, use politics to exert power against them so that they won't exert power against us. It's a really vicious, circular kind of reasoning that unfortunately becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And as we've seen, that pendulum, it does swing back and forth from time to time, and the, the swinging is getting really, really violent as is the division. So here's Kent McManigal's advice. He says, govern yourself so you violate no one else. Here's how he puts it. He says, life is too short to waste it trying to govern other people. If you're honest, you'll admit you have enough to keep yourself busy just controlling or governing yourself. And even if you have it all worked out and you are perfect, your perfection collapses the moment you try to govern someone besides yourself. It's your responsibility to govern yourself. It's not your responsibility to govern someone else, anyone else. In fact, he says governing others is something no one has the right to do. Nor can you delegate to someone else a right you don't have. And being in the majority doesn't change this. A mob, by any other name, is the same. Now, sure, he says you have the right to defend yourself and all others, or others rather, from all violators. Governing others isn't the same thing. Ken McManigal says, we all know how others should live. They also know how we should live. And those visions don't often agree. So he says, I'll give my opinion, obviously, but anyone's free to take it or ignore it. He says, my only non-negotiable stand is that they keep their hands off my life, liberty, and property, and off everyone else as well. 
Otherwise, they're setting themselves up to be the focus of defensive force. He says, I'm not so self-centered as to, as to imagine only my rights matter. Now, Ken McManigal says, long ago when I was young and foolish, I thought it was a great idea to use government violence to impose my opinions on others. I supported legislation to punish and police officers and a military to fight whatever I thought was wrong. Honestly, I think all of us have been there. I don't think he's alone in this. I know I recognize that same kind of thinking in my own life. Kent McManigal says, I knew drug abuse was stupid, so I approved of having legislation to authorize government aggression against those who abused drugs. And I thought it was a good idea to fight their stupidity with evil. He says, there were so many similar issues where I didn't like something, so I thought it was justifiable to force others to go along. But he says, I came to my senses eventually. It's called growing up. And Kent McManigal says, my life, my own life got so much better once I got over the idea that I should try to make others live as I knew they should. It's just another form of bullying, including when it's accomplished by voting for certain legislation or politicians. So again, he reiterates, govern yourself so that you violate no one else. Stand up for those being violated and leave others to, li- to peacefully live as they see fit. Government and freelance crooks can't abide by this. He says, I never expected they would, but it doesn't excuse their behavior. So how easy is it to do this? I suspect it's harder than most of us uh, would, would like to admit. And the proof in the pudding is how many times do you find yourself saying or thinking aloud, there ought to be a law against this. Now, see, for me, particularly left-lane campers, people who get in the fast lane and then just stay there, going down the interstate, driving at or just under the speed limit. And, and surprisingly, there are actually some laws that say, hey, if you're impeding traffic in the, in the passing lane, that's against the law. And it's very hard for me not to cheer. All right, we finally have a law to deal with these left-lane campers. I'm picking this example because I'm pretty sure that a lot of people can relate to this, not just us leadfoots, but... You know, people who are just uh, either either through uh, lack of awareness, no self-awareness of what they're doing to the other drivers around them, or people who are simply what my friend Eric Peters calls clovers, who are like the self-appointed hall monitors of society. Well, the speed limit says 55, and I'm going to make sure nobody is going faster than 55. I don't care if it's the fast lane. We drive the speed limit around here, we do. And that's, there's a perfect example of, hey, let's, let's control the people around us. So it's hard for me not to cheer that there are states where, yes, a person can get ticketed if they're in that uh, passing lane and just impeding traffic for whatever reason. It's hard. It's hard not to say, well, good, good. I'm, I'm glad that that police officer pulled them over. I just wish they'd take the wheels off their car and weld their doors shut. Let them sit there alongside the road, slowly starving as other people drive by. As a reminder... Not to block that uh, that passing lane. You can tell I take this one kind of personally. <laughs> but I see it in other, you know, less obvious ways too. Code enforcement is, is another one of those, those things. And I, look, St. George, Utah is one of the most beautiful places that I have ever lived. It is just a magnificent city. But something has infected the brains of, of many within the, uh, the governing class there, the municipal government to where um, the, the public says, well, I want a clean neighborhood and I want everything to look just right and I want 
my local municipality to use police force to make that possible. And so they have assembled a, a system of inspectors that are sent out hither and hither and yon to, to search for any violations of, you know, people having a car on their property that isn't registered. It doesn't matter if you have it in your garage. It doesn't matter if you have it under a tarp. You're not supposed to have an unlicensed vehicle on your property. And yes, the city will send people out there to search this out. Or if you have a neighbor who, for whatever reason, doesn't like, you know, the Jeep you have out in your backyard that you've been working on, they, uh, they'll they send them out there to, first of all, send you what's called a courtesy warning or a courtesy uh, letter, which is really a threat. You either take care of this or we up the ante and start imposing legal penalties and legal penalties if you don't if you don't pay the fine you know then it becomes something that's uh, that's that's going to include uh, you know basically arrest and and criminal charges i think it's a misdemeanor charge and the the beef that i have with this is look i want to live in a nice neighborhood too i want people to take care of their property as well do i have the right to go over there as an individual if my neighbor's yard is starting to get junky, do I have the right to go over there and force him to clean it up? Could I walk over there with a gun pointed at him and say, your yard is an eyesore. I'm worried it's impinging on my property values. And then threaten him with violence. You either clean it up or else. Pay me money or I'm going to take you away and lock you in a cage. I'll kidnap you and put you in a cage. Now, if the answer is no, as an individual, I absolutely could not do that without myself being subject to assault charges or kidnapping charges or extortion charges, whatever the case may be. That doesn't magically become right when you get someone authorized by your local, state, or federal government to go out there and do the dirty work for you. Do you understand? It's, it's not so easy, right? It's just not so easy to... to be a good person unless you just focus on get your own act together save the government's use for things that actually matter crimes where there is a victim and this is the hardest part of all learn to mind your own business that actually was a great motto at one time I don't know why we don't follow it these days this is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Perhaps you've heard this is one of those places where the oh-so-elite gather to revel in wrongthink. All right, well, it's partially true. We do gather here to revel in wrongthink. I'm glad you're uh, joining us today. As far as the uh, oh-so-important elite, uh, no, it's just we're just regular people. We just want, we value truth, we value our freedom, we value our ability to own our own worldview, and that's why on a daily basis I'm encouraging everybody I know to think as clearly and independently as possible. 
So thanks again for for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I want to mention one of my sponsors, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. They're located in St. George, Utah. Wonderful family-owned business. And they've got something very special coming up this weekend. So if you don't have Friday, April 8th, and Saturday, April 9th marked on your calendar, consider going and joining them for the quilt show that's taking place at the Dixie Center those two days. This is put on by the Dixie Quilt Guild, and I get it. Not everybody's into quilting, right? You and your Jeep buddies and your mountain biking buddies may not take time off, but uh, there are people for whom this is really important. And here's the cool part. It's a great opportunity to actually get your hands on a handy quilter long-arm quilting machine at no charge and actually see how it works. Now they've got four booths out there, four test machines that you can test drive. And if you can't make it there, you can still stop by the store and enjoy amazing two-day-only prices. So if you or someone you know is is really a fan of quilting, and especially you've been thinking about a long-arm quilting machine, this is the time. This is the time to do it. And if you've just been thinking that uh, maybe we should have a sewing machine just to, to add to our own self-reliance and our ability to take care of ourselves, again, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. This is the place to go. Tell them you heard me talking about them. Tell them, hey, Brian's uh, evangelizing for you. But consider availing yourself of their services. I think you'll be glad you did. All right, let's talk about the price of meat. I know, barbecue season is here. It's nicer weather. And uh, yet I'm looking at the price of meat going higher and higher. And uh, I may be the only one here, but I'm determined I'm not going to start eating bugs instead. I don't care what Klaus Schwab recommends. Robert E. Wright writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a great article about the potential of wild meat markets as an alternative. He says the price of meat is going up again, partly due to increases in the overall price level, in other words, inflation, and partly due to rising energy and fertilizer prices. Yes, many Americans will increase their consumption of lentils in response, but another alternative to rising prices is to unleash the potential of wild game protein. He says every year untold thousands of deer tags go unsold or unfilled. And while that might sound like good luck for Bambi, it usually means that being killed by instead of being killed by a hunter, deer's deer will instead die of disease, starvation, or as an expensive and sometimes deadly hood ornament when they try to cross a road in search of food or cover. Now biologists adjust the number of tags sold to hunters to match deer herd size and condition. So they sell more tags when there are more deer and fewer when their numbers decline below estimates of the carrying capacity of the land. And this is part of a very successful bottom-up series of policies now known as the North American Wildlife Conservation Model. And he has a link that if you want to look at that model in detail, you can click right there in his story. Now Robert Wright says, Today, though, hunters rarely kill enough deer to cull the herd sufficiently to meet the goals set by biologists. There's some truth to this because hunting isn't easy or cheap, and farmed protein until recently was relatively inexpensive. And although hunters can eat the venison themselves or give it away to friends or food banks, they cannot lawfully sell the meat or even fill the tags of other hunters. Now, Robert E. Wright says, If policymakers would wise up and read my work on wild game markets, they could help to ameliorate the negative health effects of more expensive ranched animal protein with a few simple tweaks. Number one, make it easier and cheaper for hunters to fill their tags by extending seasons and loosening up on certain restrictions, like on the use of crossbows. Number two, 
allow hunters to sell wild game meat meat retail, or if that's too radical a change to start via what I call proxy hunting or contracts in which one party, likely someone with a lower opportunity cost of time and or more skills at hunting, fills tags for another party, likely someone with a higher opportunity cost and or lower hunting skill level. See, that gets the brain, that's getting the, the wheels in my brain turning. Could I be a professional hunter? Not just lead people on their own hunt, but uh, go out there and harvest that animal for them. Gosh, if you would pay me to fish or hunt full-time, I think I would consider going into that business. A lot of people do it for free. Well, kind of. So he says, if you think such policy changes will lead to the extinction of deer, you are mistaken. Similar policies have been in place in Europe for decades and even centuries without destroying herds. The key in the American context is to ensure that wildlife biologists do not have incentives to sell too many tags. And in case you were wondering, bison were almost exterminated for geopolitical reasons, not for their meat, very little of which was consumed by humans. They were killed for their hides and to deny their meat to the Indian tribes like the Lakota, rightly resisting their imprisonment in federal government death camps, now called reservations. All that the policy changes would do short-term is make more animal protein available for human consumption safely. Now, eating a diseased dead deer is never a good idea. Most roadkill goes to waste. Everyone, including the deer themselves, are better off if they're harvested by hunters. So he says the tweaks I suggest would make sense, even under a more stable economic condition. Robert E. Wright says critters other than deer, like wild turkeys and hogs, could also increase the animal protein pool available to humans. But deer will provide the bulk as they thrive over much of the country, including even Hawaii. In fact, there are as many white-tailed deer in America right now as there were when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's interesting, huh? Now, you might be thinking, well, I'd rather eat lentils than some wild animal, and that's fine. Lots of people like wild game, and for the right price, they would actually eat more of it, leaving more, cheaper, domesticated animal meat for people who prefer that option. Sensible deregulation worked for the airlines and for their customers. It's working for sex workers, and it can work for America's meat lovers, too. I know people are like, tie all of those together for me once again. Now, I don't know. How would, you know, the Division of Wildlife Resources or Fishing Game, how would they feel about something like this? I'm sure there's probably a biologist somewhere tearing what remains of his hair out. You know, just how could you suggest such a thing? But... I think there's a lot of truth to what Robert Wright is suggesting here. And particularly the idea of, you know, managing these herds the way that they have been managed. I would have no problem with if if I can't go out and hunt for myself. I know people who are extremely skilled and who spend as much time as possible out there. They know where the deer are. They know where, you know, the, where the most likely place for success is to, to bag that game animal. I'd have no problem with it being perfectly legal for me to buy the tag and then pay that hunter to go out there and fill the tag. And you have to understand, this is not just, I mean, people who don't hunt will probably struggle with this. Just because, uh, well, you know, we, we don't really know if uh, this, this is really uh, nice to go out there and shoot at Bambi. How rude. You know, okay, I get it. Hunting is not for everybody. Now, these are the same people who have no qualms about grabbing a package of hamburger or, you know, chicken off the shelf in the store because at least no animals died, you know, to to feed me here. What? (laughs) 
But hunting is not just about killing. Anybody who has, has hunted knows this. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the people who take to the hills, you know, every, every time deer or elk season rolls around, are people who are very much in touch with nature. In fact, I believe they are working cooperatively with nature when they go out there on the hunt. And whether they bag an animal or not, I mean, ideally it'd be nice for them to put some meat in the freezer, right? That's kind of the point. But the time spent afield is unlike anything that you're going to experience, you know, trotting away on a treadmill at the fitness center or, you know, just uh, sitting on a train somewhere, you know, commuting to and from your job or sitting in traffic or walking even around your neighborhood. I don't know how to describe it. If, if you haven't been out in nature and you haven't uh, tried to match wits with animals that are more than well-equipped to uh, protect themselves from predators like you or whatever else is out there that eats them, you just can't appreciate the beauty, the incredible, uh, just the incredible setting in which uh, that, uh, that activity takes place. And I've hunted for enough of my life to understand that, uh, you know, it's, it's all fun, but the real work begins the moment you actually have an animal down on the ground and then you have to clean them and you have to, you know, properly tag them and safely transport them without spoiling the meat, you know, to where they can be enjoyed on the dinner table. I don't know of a single hunter who goes through that process that doesn't feel deep appreciation for the animal and for God's great earth which provided them the opportunity to get out there and put food on the table. I think we're very disconnected from where our food comes from. This is just one more way that we can reconnect. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I want to send a shout-out to Dixie Chiropractic, Dr. Ward Wagner. Appreciate them coming on board as a sponsor of this program. And if you or someone you know is dealing with car accident injuries or maybe bulging herniated discs or neuropathy, in other words, you need some help with that pain management, go to DixieChiro.com and, and look at some of the intro introductory offers that they have to help you. Just, just for instance... If you're dealing with a bulged, bulging herniated disc, now this is something I've had to deal with as I get older, and it is, it is not fun. When my back works, it works great, but boy, when it starts to flare up, it's, it's very, very crippling. Well, look at this. Here's a $99 intro special with two treatments and massage. Again, you can go to DixieChiro.com for more information. And if you know someone dealing with neuropathy, check out this, a $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Again, that's Dixie Chiropractic, DixieChiro.com. I have a note or have a link rather in my show notes, which will connect you directly with them. Let them know that uh, you heard about them here on this program. Now, I get the future is looking pretty uncertain in a lot of ways. There's times where I just actually have to step away from the computer and just, whoa, I need to go outside and get some fresh sunshine and breathe some fresh air, listen to the quail calling in my backyard and just, just disconnect from it. But there are also some reasons to be optimistic. And I have to admit, this article from David Deeming actually kind of blew my mind because I haven't really thought much about, uh, okay, but what's going right for the future? Because to me right now, the, the, the near future looks pretty uncertain. So, I'm sorry, it's David Deeming. 
our underground future. This was published on LewRockwell.com. And he says, where I live in Oklahoma, we're regularly hit with winter ice storms that cause massive power outages. Tree limbs weighted with ice fall and bring down power lines. And in the wake of these storms, there is invariably a call for burying electric power lines underground. But it never happens because the cost of construction and the difficulty of accessing and maintaining buried cables makes it prohibitive. But here's the good news. He says this will change. In the future, all utility lines will move underground. The problem of cost will solve itself. Everything involving technology becomes less expensive over time. The problem of access for maintenance was solved a long time ago. Roman aqueducts were, cap- were capacious enough to allow entrance for periodic removal of sinter deposits. So the electric grid, he says, will move underground, not by burying cables, but by constructing networks of tunnels several meters in diameter at depths of tens of meters. As Generation 4 fission and or fusion power reactors come online in the next few decades, nuclear power will begin to replace fossil fuels, and renewables will fade to irrelevance. The electric grid will evolve to a multiplex of small to medium-sized underground generating stations that communicate with each other and are supervised by human technicians aided by artificial intelligence. Generation capacity will have sufficient reserve and redundancy to meet any conceivable emergency. Electricity will be inexpensive and abundant. Power outages will become so rare as to be virtually non-existent. Individual homes will also move partly underground. Houses will have a surface unit with daily living quarters flooded by natural light and fresh air. These will be connected with underground chambers that link directly with a regional tunnel system. In the future, if you desire to travel, you'll descend to a dock underneath your house that connects directly with a tunnel. You'll enter an automated electric-powered vehicular pod that will take you effortlessly to your destination at the highest possible speed. The position of your pod will be constantly relayed to a central control system that can effortlessly coordinate the the movement of millions of vehicles. Traffic jams, delays due to inclement weather, and accidents will cease to exist as artificial intelligence algorithms manage transportation to achieve maximum possible efficiency. The movement of industrial and commercial supplies will also be vastly improved. When you purchase an item on the Internet, it will be delivered to your house within a matter of hours by automated systems moving through the universal tunnel system. You will wake up in the morning to unpack a fresh box of groceries delivered overnight and place in a refrigerated unit on your property by robots. I know this is this just science fiction that you're reading. No, but this is this is definitely something that could be possible. And I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Elon Musk. Yes, that guy. He's actually been pioneering, you know, underground boring techniques that, that are simply remarkable. Now, this may be different technology that Mr. Deming's talking about here, but but the point is there there is already significant progress being made in this direction. And Mr. Deming says, underground infrastructure is robust. An underground electric grid can be shielded and hardened against the threat posed by both geomagnetic storms as well as EMPs. Underground transportation and utility systems are also less vulnerable to terrorist attacks and natural disasters. With the exception of features such as elevated roadways, surface space available for infrastructure is inherently limited to two dimensions. Underground is three-dimensional there's always room to add an additional tunnel by digging deeper. 
And there's a reason the world's foremost technological visionary, Elon Musk, has invested in tunnel-boring technology. So David Deming says, We have a reason to be optimistic about the future. With the emergence of demographic transition, humanity has solved its greatest environmental problem, overpopulation. Now, it's anticipated that the human population will peak near 10 billion in the second half of this century and then begin to decline. Moving human infrastructure underground will free up more land area for preservation of the natural environment. Nuclear power will make any concerns over global warming moot. Agriculture will evolve radically, and due to dramatic changes in the efficiency of production, global land area under cultivation has already begun to decline. We have robots guided by artificial intelligence that use lasers to kill weeds. Pesticides will be phased out as this technology is extended to eradicate insects. Now here I have kind of a Jurassic Park moment. Uh, Is that a good idea? I mean, come on, the balance of nature and all that, but I'll leave that concern aside for the moment. David Deming says robotic labor guided by artificial intelligence will be harnessed to clean up waste dumps if we embrace advanced technology. The promise of a pristine and restored environment lies within our grasp. He says since the advent of the Industrial Revolution a little more than 200 years ago, the human race has made unprecedented progress in material and social welfare. There's no reason to think this progress has stalled or even slowed down. Nothing will restrain the engine of human creativity and ingenuity. Not everything will appear in the future as we envisage it today, but the synergistic confluence of nuclear power, artificial intelligence, and robotics heralds the imminence of a golden age. I mean, that's a pretty optimistic take. And maybe I'm just looking for a reason to feel optimistic, but hey. Now, a friend sent me a couple of photos yesterday. I don't know if you've seen this. But it was, uh, the, the first things I saw, the first artistic renderings done by artificial intelligence, you can Google these, but holy cow, they are the stuff of nightmares. How does artificial intelligence see the world? I mean, everything is eyeballs. And these weird repeating details that, that would make you wonder, am I having a stroke? What, what's going on? I can't, I can't even make sense of this picture. Things are almost recognizable, but not quite. That was then. Now they have this artificial intelligence that you tell it, hey, I want a picture of a a detective rabbit reading a newspaper in a Victorian setting. And it creates a picture that is so incredibly detailed and, and just so remarkably well done. And I think they did about 20 of these different photos. And in each case, it was some very specific, you know, give me an image of this. And the AI delivers. Now, I'm seeing a little bit of danger here, too, in the sense, you know, deep fakes. You know, what kind of falsified video footage or uh, falsified photographs might we see in the future? Seems like a person with their hands on this technology could have the ultimate blackmail machine on their hands if they so chose. Nevertheless, it's pretty amazing. And I assume that, uh, you know, we we shouldn't assume that all um, artificial intelligence is going to become the Terminator. So whether it's Cyberdyne systems or something much more benevolent, who knows, you know? Maybe AI, instead of turning on humanity, could actually save humanity. How's that for a thought? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Don't forget about my sponsor, LifesavingFood.com. I can tell you right now, there is still plenty of food storage in stock. I do worry that this is going to change at some point. And, I, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm trying very hard not to promote any kind of fear or, or any kind of panic in anybody. I'm just, I'm looking at the reality that you are hearing more and more world leaders talking about potential food shortages. If you follow <clears throat> how, how agriculture works and fertilizer is produced, and uh, it's, it's very clear there are some huge disruptions that are coming. Now, right now we feel pretty safe because you can still walk in the supermarket and there might be a few gaps on the shelves, but nothing much. But if you have seriously thought about what would I do if I could not go down to Walmart and get what I needed, you know, on demand, this would be a really good time to consider maybe getting some food storage put away. Click on the link I provide in my show notes for lifesavingfood.com. Whether your needs are big or small, whether you have somebody with gluten intolerance in your family or not, You'll find a variety to choose from for any budget. And every step you take in socking away a little bit of something for the future, I'm talking 25-year shelf life food storage, is going to bring you a little more peace of mind and a little more security in a a fairly uncertain world. Lifesavingfood.com. I know yesterday I was talking about Elon Musk and his presence at Twitter, and boy, there's no doubt it is making significant waves. And in fact, I've got a great essay here from Max Borders explaining free speech and genuine diversity to the Twitterati. He starts with a quote from Thomas Jefferson from Notes on the States of Virginia. Quote, Reason and free inquiry are the only effectual agents against error. Reason and persuasion are the only practicable, practicable instruments. To make way for these, free inquiry must be indulged, and how, we, how can we wish others to indulge it while we refuse it ourselves? Now, Max Porter says, if ever you were wondering about free speech, you could turn to Twitter. The Twitterati will tell you everything you need to know about free speech and what it means in 280 characters or less. First, they will tell you that free speech has nothing to do with anything that happens on Twitter because Twitter is a private company. Here's a tweet says, I still don't get why people think a private company violates the First Amendment when the amendment says Congress cannot make laws that restrict freedom of speech. A private company can establish rules if you want to use their products, you dopes. All right. (laughs) Max Border says, private companies may control speech as they wish, you dopes, because the Constitution only protects citizens from censorship by the U.S. government. So here's another tweet. Free speech applies to government restrictions on speech. It doesn't apply to Twitter. It doesn't apply to your job. It doesn't apply to dress codes. The First Amendment is only 45 words long. Read it. Got that, says Max Borders. Free speech has been reduced to 45 words. And if you are not a U.S. citizen, those words don't apply. Then he says they will tell you that critics of private companies like Twitter are, therefore, not only out of bounds, but that free speech concerns are an affront to freedom of association and, therefore, disassociation. Here's a tweet that says, What Elon Musk and other anti-social media scolds call freedom of speech really just boils down to the negation of freedom of association. It's not just a technicality that freedom of speech binds state actors rather than private ones. Now, Max Border says, from this, you might think that apologists for digital lynch mobs and private censorship have been worshipping at the altar of libertarian brutalism. Though technically accurate in abstraction land, narrow construals of free speech overlook more than a few essential points. 
So here he gets into describing this, free speech, letter, and spirit. In the United States, he says it's true that the First Amendment only protects people from government censorship. But it's also true that private property rights trump free speech. Now, property owners generally make the rules about speech on their property, and those rules can be illiberal, arbitrary, and even grossly unfair as long as the government is not involved in setting those policies. Now, that last point's a qualifier, which we're going to return to later. But the thing about free speech is it has a letter and a spirit, which the founders understood. And so apparently does Elon Musk. Elon Musk tweeted, given that Twitter serves as the de facto public town square, failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. What should be done? In fact, he says in another tweet, free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. And he asks, do you believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle? Now, Max Borders says the letter is the law, but the spirit transcends the law among conscientious people. And Musk is one of them. I mean, he just bought the largest stake in Twitter, which will surely test the Twitterati. But according to liberals such as John Stuart Mill, we ought to practice speech toleration even in private settings. And the ought here is moral, not legal. If one objects to censorship or suppression on private platforms, she appeals to the spirit of free speech, which differs from the First Amendment. One can and should apply moral suasion beyond a strict legal doctrine. We do it all the time. Sure, some people get confused about the difference, but some free speech scolds are simply appealing to an established liberal doctrine, which we call toleration. So by analogy, he says, let's imagine that the same brutalist libertarian criteria applied to people living in the Jim Crow South. Regarding the law, one can agree that property rights and freedom of association should always trump free speech in private settings. So when a racist denies entry to a person of another race solely because of his race, one might argue that is wrong. To forbid an innocent human being from sitting at a lunch counter or attending a university, even if the owner's decision comports with the principle of property rights and freedom of association, would still be wrong. That's because discrimination based solely on race is wrong under most liberal ethics. So if Adam Bates, referenced above, is determined to protect freedom of, of association, but refers to anyone who evokes the spirit of free speech as scolds, he must also be prepared by his own narrow rationale to defend the racist owner of the lunch counter in our example. Good luck with that. Now, by Twitterati logic... Max Borders says anything goes as long as it's legal, and if it's legal, you should just shut the F up. But that sort of thinking excludes too many extra political and extra legal standards and practices that give rise to peace and progress. For instance, the Atlantic's Connor Friedersdorf tries mightily, mightily to find the spirit of free speech among the free speech reductionists. His tweet says, has anyone in the actually it's just consequence culture and that's good camp sketched out their notion of what it is and isn't? Beyond the, beyond the pale, with enough particularity that one can at least identify the edge cases. Now, Friedersdorf got a number of dismissive responses from this, including from uh, someone that uh, Max Border says he generally respects and considers a liberal. That would be Jason Kuznicki, who says, you're treating it as if there's some appropriate point on a spectrum that we've got to seek out and converge on. But there's no point, no spectrum, no chance of convergence. I'm basically okay with that, even so. Consequence cultures not culture. Max Border says, therefore the idea that consequence cultures has and ought to have no limiting principle at all, 
Nothing that checks it, questions it, or stands in its way, according to reductionists. Not even the greatest Enlightenment liberals offer anything of substance to the conversation because they appeal to points on spectra that don't exist. He says, what a god-awful failure of imagination. The consequences of consequence culture can therefore be completely arbitrary. The contrivances of a mob or any illiberal march through the institutions as long as they do their job. And that job is to contrive consequences that push people into submission, subjection, or silence. And his point is that too many people are basically okay with that, which is one reason discourse has turned to crap, not to mention much of social media. Max Border says, I suspect those who tolerate such intolerance enjoy watching Twitterati team sports more than they seek understanding or strive to uphold any principles essential to community life outside the church of state. Those who think that they, they have some sort of gotcha when it comes to this two-step about private companies may be brutalist libertarians, regime leftists, or something in between. But he says they don't have to be liberal. They don't seem to be liberals. To be a liberal, after all, is to think that the best antidote to bad opinion or misinformation is higher quality speech and evidence that tracks truth and respects discourse norms. Liberals seek to protect speech in both spirit and letter to a greater extent, even if such protections can never yield perfect outcomes. The discursive process generally creates better outcomes over time. I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit. Uh, he, he covers a lot of different stuff here. But, uh, in fact, let's just hit a couple of high points. Why the value of toleration will always be a virtue, for reasons that include the following. Number one, you might be wrong, and those with whom you think you disagree might be right. Number two, you might come to understand why someone might be justified in holding another view, even if you disagree with it. Number three, tracking the truth requires interrogating claims from different points of view. Number four, minority perspectives frequently turn out to later be majority perspective. In other words, think about the lab leak theory. Number five, skepticism is part and parcel to scientific inquiry, so we need skeptical voices. Number six, humans are different from one to the next, and they come with different values. In other words, pluralism exists, and we are at our best when we're able to integrate others' perspectives as facets of a greater truth that would be hard to see without taking on diverse points of view. Man, there's a lot in this article. It is so worth your time. I've got a link in the show notes. Again, Max Borders from the American Institute for Economic Research. Explaining free speech. This is a worthwhile explanation. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I want to thank you for being a part of this audience today. If you find value in the information that I share with you, I would ask you to please patronize my sponsors. And I don't mean pat them on the head and say, I like you. I'm talking about uh, find opportunities to do business with them. If you don't need their particular product or service at this time, then feel free to refer someone who does. Let them know that their advertising has reached your ears and that, uh, that you have responded to their message. I greatly appreciate it. They appreciate hearing that, uh, that uh, you are getting their message. And in this way, we help each other out. They keep me on the air, so to speak. I, I hope to keep them in business and thriving. 
Okay, I'm going to go a little bit heavy for this final segment here, so i got to warn you that, uh, you know, the conflict in Ukraine right now has a lot of people, myself included, wondering, uh, did we just witness the kickoff of World War III? I mean, nobody who was uh, paying attention on the day that a certain radical shot a certain uh, archduke to death, you know, in the streets of Sarajevo back in, what was it, 1914? Nobody, I think, really fully appreciated what that uh, conflict would spiral into over the next uh, few months and years. And I'm certainly not hoping that what's happening in Ukraine is indicative of a much larger conflict, but you do have to wonder, where is this going? And one of the questions that's been brought up, and this has been particularly on my mind, is, look, it may not be a nuclear war, a shooting war even for that matter, you know, worldwide, but an economic war? Holy cow, there is some pretty serious stuff going on right now. And and there's a very strong possibility the dollar is the world's reserve currency is on its way out. Now, that may sound like, oh, my gosh, Brian, we, who do we need to nuke to make that stop? But you got to understand that this, the system that we have lived under, the monetary system that we have embraced as a nation and, and by de facto as the world, thanks to the Bretton Woods Agreement after World War II, that Federal Reserve system, that fractional reserve banking system, is definitely something that is... Uh, it's been a great cause for mischief. So I want to share some thoughts with you from the Z-Man talking about World War III. And this is not to scare anybody, but simply to provide some perspective as to what's going on and, and what are some of the different uh, nuances that we may miss in the daily propaganda that's coming at us fast and furious from most Western media sources. The Z-Man writes, the war that the global American empire has launched against Russia is just the beginning of a global war it believes will bring about the end times. Now that sounds extreme, but the top foreign policy people of the regime are quietly talking about regime change both in Moscow and Beijing. Now the main focus right now is Moscow, but they have Beijing in their crosshairs and maybe even New Delhi. They believe the war is the final phase of history, of the end of history. Now, that sounds insane given that Russia has more than enough nuclear weapons to reduce the empire to dust. Despite this reality, the people in charge of the empire have the current figurehead demanding that Putin be arrested for war crimes. Now, this is a new reality that needs to be acknowledged. Joe Biden is not in charge of anything. That was made clear when Barack Obama visited the White House recently. Biden was completely ignored by everyone, including Obama. Putting that aside... The global American empire seems to have determined that the next war to end all wars and usher in the end times will be a financial one. Their response to Russian defensive measures in the Ukraine have revealed this thinking. The Ukrainians have been begging for air cover, heavy weapons, even troops. And what Washington has organized for them is a series of Twitter campaigns intended to cancel Putin and all Russians, along with an organized economic war against Russia. In a way, he says... Ukraine is the proof of concept for the empire. They are fully committed to an economic war with Russia that transcends Ukraine. What happens a month from now when the war is over? The Russians will destroy the Ukrainian army in the east, and that will force a deal. Either Zelensky is killed by his own people or he flees. The alternative is Russia simply partitions Ukraine along ethnic lines and imposes the deal on Ukraine that matches what's been proposed. Now, will these sanctions last forever? Will the West simply acknowledge reality and strike a deal with the Russians? 
The Z-Man says it seems pretty clear that Washington will not allow Zelensky to make a deal with Russia. So what happens when the Ukrainians get tired of dying and kill Zelensky instead? Will his replacement be recognized? These simple questions make clear that this war Washington has launched against Moscow goes well beyond the events in Ukraine. It's a war of conquest. And there's another front in this war. Beijing correctly understands that they are also in Washington's death pool. This is why they've backed Moscow and why they'll probably look to join the fight sooner rather than later. The reason for that is they know the empire cannot win a two-front war. Slapping sanctions on Russia will impoverish the imperial subjects in Europe, but not those in North America. A trade war with China, on the other hand, will hit Americans very hard. Now, China also has the long-term objective of capturing Taiwan, which will open the way for China to being the dominant power in the region. Look at a map, and it's clear that Taiwan is the Malta of the China Sea. Whoever controls it controls access to the Pacific and control of the sea lanes to Asia. As long as the global American empire controls Taiwan, China is a landlocked power walled off from the sea by countries financially and militarily tied to the American empire. Now, there are some questions that are left unanswered at the moment. One of them is whether China would prefer a shooting war with America or an economic one. Now, if it's the former, then the only way to do that is to make a hard play for Taiwan. That would start with blocking access to the Taiwan Straits. This would force the U.S. to send the Navy to open the Straits, which would expose those ships to attack. This would give both sides the reason to organize for war over Taiwan. Now, if it's an economic war then the logical play is to openly and aggressively defy the sanctions regime on Russia. This would lead to sanctions from Washington, which would be answered with sanctions from Beijing. The Z-Man says the Chinese could pick a range of strategically important products to withhold from the West, and this would have a real impact on the imperial subjects living in North America. Imagine a shorting of clothing and vehicle tires and a shortage of car parts. Now, there are good arguments for both scenarios. But no one seems to know how China sees this war unfolding. But they certainly studied it. Back in 2013, the Pentagon learned that the Chinese have been studying the relative human capital between China and the global American empire. To their shock and horror, they have learned that the Chinese do not think diversity is our strength. The Chinese have been also studying Pearl Harbor, which suggests they're thinking about a shooting war as well. He says China's not the only other front in this burgeoning global economic war. India has been hostile to the empire since the war on Russia started. Saudi Arabia has also been unpleasant about the sanctions regime. Most likely, the pending Iran deal has been scuttled to keep Riyadh from changing teams. Then you have the global south, which will suffer first in this war. How the West keeps them from moving north en masse is a question no one seems to ask. So the Z-Man says what Washington has done is organize the West for a global economic war against the rest of the world. It is a conflict of visions. China and Russia imagine a multipolar world while Washington demands a unipolar world. This conflict began and will end around global economic arrangements. Now, of course, economic disputes often lead to military disputes, so that's always on the table. But no one knows if Washington has thought this through, but we do know who will pay the price. Now, I'm not, I'm not sharing this with you as this is gospel truth and you are bound to, uh, you know, accept it and, and believe it. 
but I think it's pretty solid analysis. The Z-Man has always had, I think, a very clear knack for cutting through a lot of the official bluster and smokescreen and getting right to the heart of the issue. And I don't know. You know, there's a possibility maybe the Z-Man is wrong on this one. But this strikes me as being pretty plausible. I mean, I'm open to, to more information. If there's something more somebody can share with me that would, would uh, offer further perspective or a better vantage point, hey, I'm all for it. This much I do know. The stage is being set for some very dramatic upheaval in what uh, we have regarded as normal life. And this is not because, you know, we're necessarily doomed or anything like that. This is part of the historical cycle known as the fourth turning. We are building towards the climax of the current fourth turning. And it's going to involve civic decay, economic upheaval, and very likely broad global war. I don't tell you this to scare you. I tell you this to point out we've been through these cycles before. We have survived. In some cases, we came out better on the other side of the crisis. But the single biggest factor that determines, will we have a good conclusion to this, or is it going to be something that leaves us worse off than we were before, comes down to the character of the people who are living through that fourth turning. So if you want to make some impact on the world, keeping in mind there's a lot that's out of our immediate control, you can still have decided impact simply by striving with everything you've got to be the best person that you can be. This is The Brian Hyde Show.